Hello, hello. If you are an ambitious female professional who wants to up-level your voice and your confidence, I have a super important announcement that you are not going to want to miss. Right now, enrollment is open for my signature coaching program, The Art of Speaking Up Academy. If you are looking for a simple but powerful step-by-step process to help you learn to speak like an executive and to help you feel more badass and unstoppable deep down inside, this is the program for you. To learn more, head over to jessguzzickcoaching.com slash academy. Enrollment is open through Wednesday, March 20th. That's jessguzzick, J-E-S-S-G-U-Z-I-K, coaching.com slash academy. All right. Let's get on to the episode. I think that joy is something that's possible to find in work when something is both interesting to you and important to you, but it doesn't mean that you'll be like grinning through every moment. It's like a marriage. You feel so fortunate to have this thing in your life, but there are hard parts as there are in marriages. The way to think about grit and passion is whether those hard moments and those difficulties are in service of something which, broadly speaking, you're happy to be married to. Welcome to The Art of Speaking Up, a podcast that helps professional women access the limitless potential that lies within them. I'm your host, Jessica Guzik, and my mission is to help you find that spark inside you that has the power to transform your career in ways you may not have thought possible. I'm so excited that you're here. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you're new here, welcome to the show. Welcome to the community. My name is Jess or Jessica. People always say, do you prefer Jess? Do you prefer Jessica? I like them both. But hi, I'm Jess. I'm the host of the show. I'm the creator of this podcast. I'm a career coach for women in the nine to five space. And all of the work that I do on this show and in my coaching and in all of the content I create is all around helping women feel amazing and feel confident and feel powerful so that they can perform at their highest level so that you can perform at your highest level and so that you can create success and joy and happiness and fulfillment in your career. And ultimately, I really want to help women become powerful leaders and I want to help you all become CEOs. And like for those of you whose brains like squish and crunch and are like, eek, that's not for me. You're, you're the people that I want to help do that because there's so, so much talent out there. And this show is dedicated to helping you bring that talent out in as strong a way as possible. And today's episode is perfect for that. Today's guest, Angela Duckworth, she is a researcher and a psychologist, and she's the author of a book that I loved that completely like lit my spirit on fire when I listened to it. I listened to the audiobook of Grit. Her book is titled Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And it's all about grit. And it's all about, I mean, she'll speak about it better and she says it best. But for me, I think about it as like staying in the game, staying in it, staying with it. And that can be one of the hardest things for us to do. And I know for so many of you on this journey of building confidence, I think one of the things that's hardest 
about building confidence is that it doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't happen super quickly. It's not a decision that you just make one time and then all of a sudden you feel amazing forever for the rest of your life. Confidence and feeling power and having that inner power is a decision that you make over and over and over. And not only do you make it over and over, but it's a decision that you make in the moments where you really don't want to make that decision, the moments where you're feeling really bad and really awful and in the moments where you really don't want to make that decision to have your own back and show up powerful and be really bold. Confidence is all about repetition and staying with it. And so I was so excited to talk to Angela about her work and all of her perspectives and life experiences on creating success and creating happiness and fulfillment and harnessing and building confidence. She says something in this conversation that resonated with me on such a deep level. It was just this brief phrase that she used, but like it touched me in this way that I can't fully explain. She talked about how like sometimes when we're struggling, and and you'll hear her speak about this, but she talked about how sometimes when we're struggling, we're just so hard on ourselves. Like we're struggling and then we're hard on ourselves about the struggle and then we're hard on ourselves for being hard on ourselves about the struggle. And she used the phrase like layers and layers of feeling bad. And that really evoked something for me because when I started this show, one of the reasons that I started this show was because I really experienced what she describes as layers and layers of feeling bad. I had this time in my career where I felt so awful and I lacked confidence and I just like felt broken and weird and like an outsider and it wasn't a good feeling and it was such a great experience for me to hear her describe her own experience of that and being hard on herself and to hear her talk about like as she matured and as you know she developed as a person she was able to let go of that and I think that that's such a beautiful insight and such a beautiful thing that she shares in this because I think so much of your journey of building confidence and feeling amazing and learning to feel powerful is about letting go of those extra layers of self-judgment and self-criticism and it is about finding softness and gentleness and forgiveness in the moments where you feel like you're not doing well or you feel like you messed it up or things aren't going the way you want. It's about releasing that extra layer of like, well, I shouldn't have done it that way. I should be doing it differently. And when she used that phrase, like layers and layers of feeling bad, it just really resonated with me. There's so much in here. I want to stop talking about this conversation so you can hear it. It's such a good one. And I can't wait for you to meet Angela and hear her dive into all of her insights and share some of her stories and experiences. If you're new here, check out the show notes to learn more about how you can get more involved with this work, with the show. You can connect with me online. I have a beautiful private Facebook group you can join to connect with the other women who listen to the show. And I also have some free resources down in the show notes. And now it's time for the interview. I hope you love it. And with that, let's meet Angela. Hello, Jessica. I'm excited for this conversation. My name is Angela Duckworth. I am a psychologist. I am a mom. I am the CEO of a nonprofit called Character Lab. And I think about questions like, you know, what happens to people in life and why. So I'm excited to touch on some of those questions today. Awesome. And to learn a little bit more about your life, one of my favorite things to ask people about is the beginning of their career. When you were first starting, what was hard for you? Everything was hard for me when I was first starting, but I'm also trying to remember when the beginning of my career was in a sense. I went to graduate school 
I was 32 and a half, and I remember thinking, wow, this is a little old to be getting homework assignments and to be studying for tests. My classmates in the PhD program in psychology at Penn were you know, for the most part, eight or 10 years younger than I was. So I guess at the beginning, in part, it was hard for all the reasons why anything new is hard. I was trying to do something I couldn't yet do. But I would say that what preceded graduate school was even harder, and that was not yet knowing what I wanted to do. And now that I'm a professor and I get to hang around with a lot of 20, 21, 22-year-olds and then recent graduates in their mid-20s, I think the hardest thing in life is not doing the thing that's difficult, but the years that precede even that decision to do what you're going to do. Yeah, it can feel uncomfortable when you know something's off, but you don't have the answer quite yet. Yeah, uncomfortable would be a gentle way of saying it. I really (laughs) felt like I was so unhappy. I was really tortured. And it wasn't something that I, you know, only occasionally thought about like, oh, every few months, it just, you know, sort of bothers me that I don't really know what I'm doing with my career. I mean, it bothered me daily. It bothered me almost hourly. And then, you know, eventually, and it wasn't even the cleanest, it it wasn't even like I had an epiphany. I mean, I remember saying to my husband that he had to keep me in psychology for 10 years. And then if I wanted to change after a decade, then then I could do that. But, But I wanted him to kind of force me in a way to like stay in psychology for a decade, because I I knew that there would be like lots of times where I would doubt the decision. And I and I wasn't actually sure myself. I just had the sense that I, I better start walking in a given direction because otherwise I'm just going to be walking in circles. I relate to that a lot. And that reminded me of the feeling of like the brain wanting the answer before you take action and how that can keep you in that cycle of never doing anything. I think the metaphor that is sometimes helpful to people is a metaphor that these two originally German psychologists, Gabrielle Ettingen and Peter Golwitzer, they call it crossing the Rubicon. So I think they developed this theory when they were in the Alps on sabbatical or something. And, you know, the Rubicon is that river that Caesar apparently famously crossed. And, and, and by setting foot in this river, it was basically a declaration of war. And he knew at that point that it was a decision that you couldn't like take back, right? I think it's what Am- Amazon founder Jeff Bezos calls like a one-way door, right? And they use this to describe what it feels like to commit to a goal. And they say that like when you really say to yourself, like, I'm going to do this, there is this feeling of like vigor and determination. And before that, you, you just are kind of wondering and like you don't have that conviction, but also you are you're really in a different mindset, which is you're thinking about all your options and their pros and their cons and and likelihoods. And then after you've crossed the Rubicon, you're really about action and you're making plans and you're trying to overcome obstacles. And I, I think that when we think about what's hard about doing something, we often think about the obstacles, the plans, you know, overcoming. But I think actually before you cross the Rubicon, it's even more difficult. And, and I certainly didn't like being on the other side of the Rubicon than I am now. Yeah, it's funny when you describe it like that and then getting a PhD, because I think of a PhD as one of the most time consuming things you can do. So that's like a big Rubicon to cross. It is. And I think the Rubicon for me was just deciding I wanted to get a PhD, right? Like, yeah, four or five years of hard work. And um, there's, of course, some uncertainty. And there's all kinds of setbacks that anybody doing anything, including a PhD, would be able to tell stories about. But I would just say that deciding that I was going to get a PhD and deciding I was going to train as a psychological scientist was the decision itself was so much more difficult to come to. I mean, it took me 10 years to figure out that I wanted to do that. And then, of course, it took four or five years to actually do it. But I would trade 
those, I mean, I, I was so glad to be done with my twenties. I was like, I, <laughs> you know, my body's falling apart, but I would much rather be here than where I was. Yeah. It felt good to say goodbye to the twenties. I just feel like you're figuring <laughs> out so many things. Yeah. And then finally in your thirties, you don't have it all figured out, but at least you have like one thing. One yeah, more yeah, thing right, figured exactly. out than you had in your twenties, which I like. I want to get your thoughts on a Rubicon that I know a lot of people who listen to the show face, which is can I be strong and confident and powerful in my role in my career, even when I don't feel that way all the time. I want to know just from your perspective and the work that you do. For women who are listening who are very ambitious, do very good work, but they do shrink away a little bit in a room and they're not bringing that same level of vigor to their voice and to speaking up. What are your thoughts on that? It's certainly the case that women tend not to be as quick on the trigger when it comes to, you know, raising your hand or, or who has a great idea about how to solve this, that there are established gender differences in confidence. Now, one could look at that as women being underconfident. You could also look at that as men being overconfident. And some of this research I'm thinking of, Muriel Niederly at Stanford, where there's a like a game, you know, laboratory experiment where you come in and you're doing these math problems. And after a while, you're, you're given a wager of some kind of maybe getting some of these details wrong. But basically, you can decide whether you get paid piecemeal, like every problem you get right, you get paid, a you know, 50 cents or a dollar, or you could kind of have a winner take all competitive thing, like you're in a room with four people, like, like who thinks they can beat the other three people, and then you get the whole pot right? So it's a very revealing experiment because there are these striking gender differences where men are much more likely to say like, oh, I can beat these three total strangers. I'll go for it. And then women are much more likely to say, I'll, I'll go piecemeal, at least in that scenario. So I don't know that there's a lot of good that comes from just feeling bad about it. I spent a lot of time in my 20s also just feeling bad about myself. I was like, oh, I'm bad. I'm like, and I, and I, I don't know that that's a very helpful emotion. I don't want to say that we should be arrogant either. But um, I think if you notice about yourself that you have ideas that meeting ends and you never said them, or that people keep saying things that you thought, but you didn't you didn't get a chance at the mic to verbalize, then if you notice that about yourself and you think that that might be something that you want to work on, I, I wouldn't feel bad about it. I would be curious about that. And then I would want to say like, hmm, if I wanted to try it a different way, like what would be a little experiment that I could run? And here's something that you could do. I mean, the next time you're in a meeting, rather than allowing there to be like a long reaction time where you're like, I want to wait until I have something really good to say, and it's perfectly well thought out and nobody else is talking and nobody else's hands up. You might experiment with in the moment I kind of have an idea, I'll just put my hand up. And while I'm getting called on, I'll just formulate it a little better and then I'll just say it and it won't be perfect. And it might even be stupid, but let me just see what that's like. And I think starting with a curious observation of your own tendencies and then trying a few experiments and maybe even saying to yourself like, oh, it's just an experiment. So, you know, just this Wednesday, I'm going to try an experiment. I'm going to try to be this kind of extroverted, outspoken person. I wonder what will happen. And then and then noticing again, like what, what that felt like. I think that sometimes can get us out of a rut, if you will, of the sort of the habitual way that we tend to conduct ourselves. Yeah, it's fascinating how we can convince ourselves that something's true and because we just have failed to question it and have stayed with that for so long, we like, I feel like the experimentation is such a good way to like break out of that. And then you just immediately have the evidence that what you thought was not true. 
Yeah, the idea of thinking about this experimentally, one of my favorite papers in 2020 was done by a psychologist named Patricia Chen. She's at National University of Singapore, and she wanted to understand like having a kind of experimental, or she calls it a strategic mindset, and what the benefits might be. So she randomly assigned people to this task, and then you were randomly assigned to either the strategic mindset or a control. But the task, it was the same for everyone, and that was just to separate eggs. The egg yolks in one container, and then the egg whites in another and then put the shells in a third. And there are lots of ways that you could try to separate eggs. And she encouraged the strategic mindset group to ask themselves questions like, is there a better way to do this? Like, you know, could I be doing this differently? Is there somebody I could ask for advice? And I think if you ask yourself these questions, like, how am I in meetings? Or like, how do I do anything, right? Like, is there something else to try? I think it can get you into this more creative space. And I think it's, you know, the way kids actually often think about doing things, right? They're just playing. Yeah, I agree. And it's also interesting, too, because I think sometimes when someone gets stuck in their head, they're moving away from the problem and the thing that the meeting is about that you can also be curious about. And it's like when if your curiosity hits a certain tipping point, you're going to ask your question or share your thing because you have to know because it feels so important. And there's nothing more attractive, I think, nothing more charismatic than somebody who's just like, really into something and just, you know, they really want to know, right? I mean, it's infectious. We all know people who are like that. And I think we've all been that way in certain contexts in our life, where we're just like, 10 times taller than we usually are. And it just we have so much energy. And I think like becoming more and more like that, like having more days like that, more moments like that would be a good aspiration. I agree. And that actually connects to something that I want to ask you about that connects back to the topic of grit, which is finding joy in what we're doing. And I'm curious, because I think that's something where I know for me, it can be hard to do that sometimes. And I'm curious what that's looked like for you in your life and how you stay connected to joy. You know, the first criticism or complaint like that whenever I say like grit and the people are like oh well not everything uh, well then I usually start talking about passion and how it's important to do something that gives you energy probably in part because it's interesting to you and probably in part because it resonates with your values right Mm -hmm. and at that intersection of like wow this is so enjoyable and wow this is so important I think is where people find a calling right and um the first complaint I usually hear after that is like, well, yeah, but you know, lots of things people have to do for their work are hard. Like who wants to do wind sprints? Like who wants to play scales? Like who wants to go to faculty meetings or like who wants to get rejected? And so, so I think the way to think about grit and passion is that if you do have a project or a job that is interesting and important to you, it's like a marriage, right? You feel so fortunate to have this thing in your life, but there are hard parts as there are in marriages, right? And maybe you even need to go to marriage counseling from them. Maybe you need to like work on your attitudes towards money or whatever it is. That's the training. Those are the scales. Those are the wind sprints and so forth. So, so I do think that joy is something that's possible to find in work when something is both interesting to you and important to you, but it doesn't mean that you'll be like grinning through every moment. I think there are times where you're going to have to do hard things. It, the difference is, is entirely in whether those hard moments and those difficulties are in service of something which broadly speaking, you're happy to be married to, right? And so that is the complexity of this question. But I, I feel about my own work, like, oh my gosh, psychology is 
literally the most interesting thing I can imagine any person doing for their life. It is important to me in a value sense because I, I labor under the illusion that maybe somebody will be benefited if I do my job well. And in all of the hard moments, and there are those moments of failure or, you know, just tedium or like the fact that it's part of a marriage to something that I love is is what makes all the difference. Yeah, it's so interesting to think of those dark moments because they do add to the richness. Like imagine if there weren't any of those, it, it, would, it would be weird. I don't know, like something just would be missing that's supposed to be there. I, I, I hesitate to quote from Little House on the Prairie, and I'm not even going to quote from like Laura Ingalls' actual written work, but I was watching Little House on the Prairie. I don't know. Somebody in my house is watching Little House on the Prairie. So Ma says to Laura, because Laura is like, you know, having a bad day. She has a crush on this boy and he doesn't like her. He, the boy likes her sister, Mary, and Laura's crying. And I think she and Mary are getting into an argument. And then Ma says to, to Laura, a bad day is like a valley. And, and of course, we also know that we have mountains in our life too, and hills. And so she's like, now imagine what life would be like if there were no valleys and no hills. It's like, actually, you want valleys and hills and some flat ground because that's life, right? Like we have ups, we have downs, but that's like the richness of life. And then Laura agrees with her that it's good to have some valleys, even if it's not easy to be in a valley. So I thought that was good advice, like like much of the advice in Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, it's definitely one of those that's easier to dole out it, like than to take your own medicine with that. Especially when you're in the valley, right? Because when you're in the valley, you don't think that there's anything that's ever going to happen. I think for me, when you're in an emotion, it, it just like you can't see around the corner. When you feel bad, you, you really do at the moment feel like it's going to be forever. Like you're just going to feel bad forever. And I think that it's in the moments when you're not necessarily that like you do have to like write it down, remind yourself. And also that's why we have friends or why people listen to conversations like the ones that you have. I think it's sometimes like this perspective that's like a little bit like outside of your own egocentric view of the universe. And I think it does help you realize, oh, there is a corner and I can't see around it. But I, I know that once I'm around the corner, I'll be able to look back and say, yeah, that was a finite period in my life. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think this is important for the women who listen who are trying to find confidence. A lot of them are like in a nine to five or a corporate environment. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of always trying to do everything perfectly and thinking that confidence is going to look like you attaining this elusive vision of perfection that you've created in your mind. But it's like, if you stop being afraid of feeling bad or you stop being afraid of feeling embarrassed or whatever emotion feels really scary to you that you must avoid that's actually i think when you're going to start building like really rock solid confidence my friend and also i just admire her a lot reshma zuhani she wrote this book called brave not perfect and it was very much about this kind of desire to be perfect that she had as a younger woman that I experienced also, it can be really paralyzing. And it doesn't even just refer to work. It's like, oh, I have to eat the perfect diet. And I have to like, be the perfect exerciser and, you know, the perfect friend and then like the perfect daughter and now the perfect daughter-in-law. And it's it's not really, I think, the right game to be playing in part because you can't win it. But being brave is a game that you can play or just being like better, you know, like like I will, hopefully I'll have a better day, but not perfect day. And I don't really know people who are at the top of their fields who have, you know, they sometimes joke about being perfectionist. And obviously there is a kind of perfectionism in trying to become more excellent. But I don't think it's the kind of paralyzing, oh, it's ruined. It wasn't like everything. Right. Like, I don't think that's the 
the kind of attitude that gets you actually very far in anything. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's sort of like what you were saying before when someone loves the thing. That can drive you curiosity and just the desire to put something out in the world that you think is cool and awesome that makes you want to work hard at it. And you can want to be excellent. I remember interviewing Gabrielle Hamilton, who's, I have crushes on a lot of chefs, and she's just so (laughs) great. And I also read her column in the New York Times, and she will describe herself as someone who's a kind of perfectionist, right? But like, but again, not a paralyzed one. I mean, if you're really a paralyzed, you never open a restaurant, right? And certainly not a restaurant in as imperfect a physical space as Prune opened. And but 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 there is a kind of like, today, I'm going to make the English muffins. I literally, she gave this example. She was like, even if you're making brunch, right? And like, it's kind of on autopilot, you're like cranking out, you know, Hollandaise by the gallon. You're, But she was like, every day, there'd be something I was working on to be better. Like today, I'm going to split all the English muffins, and there's going to be no crumbs on my station, right? Now I can do it like, five seconds faster, like, like, now I'm going to plate these things, and there's going to be no dribs of sauce on the side. So I think there is something about trying to become better at what you do every day. But I think it's not the same thing as trying to be perfect. And certainly not the same thing as beating yourself up because you were not perfect. Yes. And I think that is an addictive habit, an emotionally addictive habit. And I know it's one that probably every single person listening relates to and has done. (laughs) We, We all have in ourselves, every possible self. So, you know, the Walt Whitman poem, I am large, I contain multitudes. I mean, one of the things that I am really fascinated by in the data that I've collected as a psychologist is that let's take self-control. Like certainly you can say, oh, how self-controlled am I compared to most people? Am I average? Am I above average? Am I below average? Okay. So that's you compared to other people. But we also look at people compared to themselves just across different domains, like how self-controlled are you about food? How about about alcohol? How about about gambling? What about media use, which just to use the euphemism was something we found that guys really indulged in a bit more than women did. What, what about like impulse shopping? You know, what about finances? I mean, the list goes on. So when you ask the question about yourself compared to yourself across these different domains, it turns out there's more variation within a single person than there is even between people. In other words, what the French philosopher, I think he was like the 16th century French philosopher, Michel de Montaigne said, I am more unlike myself than I am uh, unlike other people. And so I guess it just reveals to us that you know, almost any conversation about being lonely, about being a leader, about being shy, about being confident, about being the opposite of confident. Like we've all been all of those things at some point in in our lives, in some situations. And if that's true, then maybe we can learn to understand where where we are at our best and like why we are sometimes at our best versus at our worst, and then try to have more of those you know, those good moments and those those good days. I think that's really freeing and really permission giving because I know my experience being female, sometimes you feel confused about your identity and I have a alpha side and I have a feminine side. And it's like when you're trying to label yourself, it can it can lead to distress, I think, but it's it feels really good to think about like the vastness of what you can be and to just allow yourself to be a paradox. And why is that even a problem? Yeah, people are complicated, right? Very recently, I've become a conversation partner with Aaron Beck, who is the creator of therapy. I mean, he's the creator of cognitive therapy in particular, but most modern psychotherapy is basically some 
variant or, you know, some cousin of, of cognitive therapy. So Beck is now, I think, 99 years old. And what he's thinking about right now is that we have modes, he calls them. These would be in a way like our, our multiple selves. So there's the kind of like, you know, dominant alpha female Angela who like takes charge and tells everyone what to do, right? But there's also the kind of like, if anybody saw me at home, I think they'd be really surprised. In my family of four, I think I speak the least. First of all, my voice is tired because I talk all day. And then I'm just, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm a, I am a different person and I am, it's not that I'm submissive. It's just like, it's a different me. And like, I'm, I'm not, like, I'm not the alpha female who's in charge of a, of a lab or a team because it's just not me. I'm just like, I, that's not my situation. And when Aaron Beck talks about these modes, he says we could have, modes that are basically very adaptive and we like them and like and then we can have maladaptive aspects and these are like multiple selves right these are the multitudes that i think walt whitman was writing about in his poem and yeah we are complex and it's not a unique thing and it's not even necessarily a bad thing to have different sides of ourselves you could have your loud self i mean many of us experience this when we are with our original nuclear families it's like you just act so differently than when you're at work or like with your romantic partner. So I think if you're just observant of like which of those selves you like the most, and then maybe as Aaron Beck might advise, like make sure that you give that self like a lot of time to express them because he would also, I think, say that you can strengthen and activate certain selves that, that are desirable. And by doing that, they will, without even trying to suppress like a self that you don't like so much, you would say like, that's not the way to do it. Just strengthen and uh, give attention to the self that you do like. And then the, the self that you don't like will kind of, in a way, by attrition, like atrophy a bit. Yeah, it's so interesting, too. That also reminds me a lot of just women who are trying to find a strong style, and they haven't quite found the right role model, or they feel like they're conforming to a very stereotypical leadership style. And I think that is a real challenge for a lot of us because we just, the range of what we see out there in terms of, you know, powerful women isn't as broad as it could be and should be. And so I think it makes us also, it's like we have to draw within ourselves to create it because we're not always going to find it out in the world. Things are changing, I think, actually, in a way, if you think about like 50 years ago, I mean, who knew about anybody, right? Like now through reading somebody's memoir or like listening to them being interviewed or like, like you can actually get to know them a little bit more. These role models who aren't like your personal friends, but like Sheryl Sandberg or whoever it is that you might want to like follow in their footsteps in some way. But I agree with you that like, you might just not have one or who feels accessible or who feels like, you know, enough like you to, to really be that. But you might also think of, you know, maybe there's no one person who has like everything that you're trying to be that you can carbon copy, but there might be things that like you like about someone. So for my mom, for example, it's not like I want to emulate everything about her, but I really like her generosity. And I would love to copy paste her little habits, you know, like when we were little, she used to, I mean, just without even thinking, but she would just like give away stuff. Like, you know, she saw a kid who didn't have a toy, she would just give them our toy. And, and I think like, I, I don't have to copy paste everything out of her life, but if I copy paste generosity, I have a friend, Katie, who's like just the most efficient human being I've ever met. So I, I try to actually copy paste a lot of her productivity hacks. Like she never writes documents from scratch. She's always like imports the text from something she already wrote. And then she does, I almost <laughs> like, what? Oh yeah, right. That's faster. So I think we can maybe have a collage in a way of 
people who are role models for us, even if it's not all like in one person. Yeah, I'm so jealous of those highly productive people. I know they make you feel like <laughs> it's just you're like, wow, I'm like moving in slow motion. I feel like their passion is to figure out how to be more productive. And I'm like, damn, I wish I was more passionate about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on uncertainty. Maybe from a personal perspective, how do you relate to uncertainty? Well, I don't like uncertainty. And I think in that I'm not alone. I don't think human beings or any animals like uncertainty, like a future that's not predictable or controllable. And in fact, if you ask, like, why wouldn't we like that? You know, like, what is it so so aversive about that? It's because that's dangerous, right? Like, you know, if you're an animal trying to survive, you know, would you like the future to be predictable and controllable or unpredictable and uncontrollable? And especially now where we are at this, you know, pivotal moment, this historic year we've just concluded and it's not exactly over yet as it were like it's the uncertainty of the pandemic i think which has made it so much harder to deal with you know my daughter asked me so my younger daughter lucy said but wouldn't it have been even worse if someone said like the pandemic is going to last exactly 11.7 mm-hmm. months and i said to her you know what i think it would have been a lot easier if someone said like this is it start the countdown clock now just like muscle through What's so hard is that nobody knows where the finish line is. And sometimes we think it, but then it like it moves. And I think uncertainty is very aversive for all human beings. I'm no different. I do try to take a page out of the playbook of the people that I study who are really gritty, passionate, persevering individuals. And, and that is that I think an adaptive way to think about uncertainty is to recognize what you can't control. And then to also recognize that like there are some things you can control. And in particular, I'm reading right now this, you know, ancient Greek Stoic philosopher, Epictetus, who was born a slave and became this like very well-respected sage. And I don't believe Epictetus actually wrote down any of his own wisdom, but like a disciple actually wrote down these little aphorisms. And the very beginning of this whole collection is just basically about how in the world there are things that you can't control and there are things that you can. And a wise person recognizes that both of these things are true, but but a wise person tries to focus on what you can control. And then furthermore, what you usually can control is your own response, right? So like you can't control what's going to happen necessarily to the macro economy, but you can control your response. And, you know, how do you act? Do you smile that day? You know, you, you know, what are you going to do at 11 o'clock? Like you can control um, some things. Yeah, it's comforting to focus back on that, especially like you said, right now, things just feel so unpredictable. And I want to talk a little bit about grit and about how it can help the people who are listening, because they're a lot of them are really on a journey of learning what it is like to do scary things in their careers. And I think a lot of the women who listen to the show, like I was saying, like they work really hard and they're really high performers, but they maybe shy away from the things that aren't necessarily about like doing the work and more about taking up space, taking a risk in a meeting, things like that. So I guess I would start by asking you your thoughts on this idea of like, I can versus I can't and how that fits into your work. There is research that goes back to the 70s and even earlier on confidence. But I think in psychological jargon, it would be self-efficacy, right? Like believing that you can do something if you try. And this was the work of Al Bandura, who was working with children. And and also he was a clinical psychologist. So he worked with patients who were 
phobic of snakes and and in general he wanted to understand like why do people do what they do and and i think the m- most intuitive answer is like because they want to right like why isn't this kid doing their homework because they don't want to why is this kid doing their because they want to but al bandura recognized that there's something else that's lo- not as obvious but is extremely powerful and that is self-efficacy or confidence like why aren't they doing their homework they don't think they can like why are they doing their because they think they can like you know why is that person not avoiding the zoo or whatever like because they think they can't so so confidence or self-efficacy is very different from like what you want it's what you think you can do if you want it or if you try and the reason why this was so powerful i think as an insight is that at the time it was not recognized that your belief in your own capabilities could matter that much i mean a lot of psychological research was basically on rats and they were like you know what are the rewards what are the punishments you know that's all that matters and and it doesn't just matter what you want it does matter hugely whether you think you can do something or whether you can't and i think for myself if i ask where in my life did self-efficacy come from? I, I think I'm actually, you know, when I went to my 25th reunion, my my very good friend Tina, we were walking around in between events and, and she said to me that like when when we were in like organic chemistry together, or whatever, she was like, you know, you're, you were fearless. Like when you didn't understand something, you just raised your hand and you asked. There were like 600 people in the auditorium and nobody wanted to look stupid, but I guess you didn't care. So you were just like, I don't understand. And, and I think that self-efficacy probably came in part from small wins. So partly I had role models, but partly that I had had enough experience where I tried to ask a question and I was encouraged, not discouraged. So Al Bandura, for example, when he was working with snake phobics, the, the way that he could cure them was to give them some small wins. So he called these like mastery experiences. So, so if we want to build up our confidence, we could do what Al Bandura did. Like if you're a snake phobic, you know, first he just shows you a picture of a snake and then you realize that you can see a picture and like stay in the room and that's a win. And then, you know, you can watch a YouTube video and stay in the room. That's another win. And you progressively move up. So if you're feeling your own self-efficacy at, at an ebb and you want to make it flow, I would say that, first of all, that observation is a win. Like, good for you to recognize that. And then is there something small that you can do that is a little bit of a challenge, but not too far? And and just do that and don't look too far ahead because this incremental mastery, I think, is what eventually makes somebody like confident to do big things. It can almost feel like there's this little spark in you that's like waiting for you, like a pilot light. And then every time you do something, it's like getting stronger and stronger until it's like ready to like get really, really big. I like that analogy because it suggests that like, even though the pilot light is very small, <laughs> like, you know, you can fan it. And, and yeah, and by the way, you know, confidence can ebb. And after a series of setbacks, don't beat yourself up for having doubt. I mean, of course, you know, like congratulate yourself for not being a narcissist. Like, yeah, like, you know, if you have three bad, you know, meetings in a row, of course, you're feeling doubt, like you should be, be feeling doubt. That's, that's actually also natural and normal. I think sometimes maybe men feel this way, too. But certainly as a woman, you know, feeling like this is like extra layer of like feeling bad about yourself, because you, you know, it's like you feel bad about the thing, but then you feel bad about yourself or like, you know, just like layers and layers of feeling bad. And I, I really did spend too many years like that myself. And I guess now I'm 50. And I, I I feel like liberated in a way to kind of be like trying my best and like, 
not having those extra 12 layers of like beating myself up for when I, you know, I fall short. What was that process of shedding like? Did it, was it like a years, decades? Like <laughs> tell us for those of us who are in shedding process. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a big fan of therapy for one thing. I mean, you know, when I said that Al Bandura can be accredited with a lot of the work on self-efficacy, and then I mentioned Aaron Beck, who really created cognitive therapy and in a way was like an architect of modern therapy as we know it. it, it what's so remarkable about those insights in a way is they're kind of so obvious, right? Like, oh, confidence matters. And in therapy, a lot of the work that you do and that I did was like understanding how your emotions are, are from your thoughts. And so that you could actually start to listen to your self-talk and say like, oh, well, you know, this is why I'm feeling so anxious is that I keep having these thoughts. It seems obvious, but I think it's very hard to do unless you have a therapist who's sort of coaching you through it, like having a conversation. And I had this wonderful therapist named D. I think at the very start of therapy, I was like slightly skeptical. And I just like never thought of myself as the kind of person who went to therapy because I, you know, thought like, I had my act together. And now I realize that first of all, like literally everybody should have therapy. And why wouldn't you, right? Like if you sprain your ankle, you'd go to the physical therapist. But even before you sprain your ankle, like why not go and get coached on like how to be doing things more efficiently when you're working out? And in a way, I think one-on-one -on -one therapy, which I know not everyone has access to or or can afford necessarily. But if you have that luxury, I would just say run, don't walk to taking advantage of it. It's a, it's a wise human being whose job is to listen to you and to also share with you some perspective that is probably better than yours only insofar as like that's that's what they do all day long is like talk to people just like you and 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 put things in context yeah I agree and it's like we can never get out of our own perspective of course we can try but I feel like we're always to a certain extent gonna default back to it and it's almost like having someone clean out your brain every week to keep reminding you to get back on track and like, oh, this is okay. These are just thoughts. These are just thoughts. These are just thoughts. It's going to be okay. Yeah, that egocentric perspective. I mean, we're all living life in the first person singular, right? It's like, you know, you wake up and you see the world from exactly your two eyes. I mean, even if you wake up on the left side of the bed, you see things differently than the person who's like waking up on the other side of the bed. It's like, you only can live your life in the first person. But the wonderful thing about you know, not only therapy, but I think like when you have a conversation with another person who cares about you and knows you, like they see you from the outside in and so many things that we can be blind to. And, and very often there are good parts too, right? Like that, that other people sometimes see our strengths better than we see them for ourselves. We take for granted. By the way, if you go to, you know, I was going to say, I, I really do think therapy is great. If you go to a cognitive therapist, like a, someone who's trained in that style, it doesn't go on forever. I mean, it's not like psychoanalysis. Like it usually has a beginning, middle and end. And then of course you could always, you know, start to get, but, but I, but I think that however it figures into your life, like having outside perspective is maybe in a way like the antidote to like all of our ills, right? Because as long as we can keep getting that then like keep noticing and keep trying that like, I think we can improve on most things that, you know, we might want to improve on. I agree. I especially think about like self-sabotage that's one that could be really hard for us to see when we're doing it because it's so easy for our brains to create like these rationalizations of like, this is a good decision to like stop trying to do this. I shouldn't talk in this meeting or I shouldn't do this thing. You can always really convince yourself that it's a good idea. You can. I mean, judgment and decision-making psychologists call this confirmation bias. Like, you know, if you think a thing, you can always find the evidence to confirm your suspicions. This is why I'm terrible at interviewing people. Like, 
usually I do like people and I spend the first three minutes deciding I like them and the next 57 minutes just like confirming my original hypothesis that they're amazing. Now, that's okay for like making a friendship. I don't know if it's great for hiring people, but I do think this ability to convince ourselves that we were right all along about like whatever, you know, it is, is like one of the most important things to understand about human nature so that you can go see a therapist or talk to a friend and, and ask them very explicitly for like a, a contrary or, or independent perspective. Yeah, taking your lens off of it, someone else's lens might be more useful. Okay, before we pivot to the closing questions, do you have any advice for anyone who's in your field or who wants to be a researcher or go into academia? I would say that if you have a pilot light of interest in psychological science and research, I might suggest that the next step would be to, to actually like work for somebody even as a volunteer. Like, can I help you find participants for your survey? Or can I, you know, honestly, can I do anything? Like take the path where you're like, wow, I have so much energy after doing that. You know, I'm sure after this conversation, some people would be like exhausted and they would like want to go take a nap. And I won't feel that way. I'll be like, what? Like, we got to talk about like human nature and like what to do. Like I am more energized than when I began. And I think that's always a good sign. And where can we learn more about your work and about you? Well, I wouldn't point you to like learning more about me in particular, but if you have an interest in these questions, there's a nonprofit that I created called Character Lab. And every week I send out an essay, like a 60 second note, one actionable tip based on science. And it's at characterlab.org. And because it is nonprofit and supported philanthropically, and there are no commercials or ads, and we only exist to give away psychological science in the interest of thriving. What ignited the desire to add that into what you do and to create that? wasn't actually my idea. I met these two educators named Dave and Dominic. And this was, I guess, about 15 years ago. And they said that as educators, they really wanted someone to basically access or summarize or like make useful all of these scientific insights that they didn't have time to go to Google Scholar to like read about and like, you know, like understand the statistics or like, so that idea of making scientific insight about human nature actionable really goes to, you know, the credit goes to Dave and Dominic. And I was like the third person on the, on the, in the trio. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Well, I'm going to link that below and I'm going to take us to the closing questions, which are my favorite part. And the first one is just advice. I like to ask guests to share with the audience for this show one thing, one small thing they could do today or this week to feel more empowered in their careers. I was recently having a conversation with the chair of the board for Character Lab named Luis Vanon. So he is the creator of Duolingo, the language learning app. And he was saying that his morning routine is something that he learned from listening to a podcast, or like that you should have a morning routine. And like, it makes you more efficient to like have something where you're getting all the things done that you want to get done, but you don't have to decide every day, like, when am I going to do it? How I, like, it's just part of your routine. And he said his morning routine is like now, I think like two or more hours and he was like, it's kind of ridiculous. But and I said, like, well, are you, how do you feel about it? He's like, I think it's great. And so the very next day I woke up and I'm like, 
two hour morning routine, right? It's like, what do I want to get done? Like, I want to always have had my run. I always want to have had my coffee. Um, I also want to have had a glass of water. I always want to have, I like just check my email quickly to make sure like nothing went off the rails or like, you know, so my morning routine is that, you know, it's like a, a combination of those things in a certain order. But I would say that if you want to think like, what would my morning routine be? Like, and then just start the next morning and then maybe look at your calendar and like, make sure you block out, you know, is it 10 minutes? Is it half an hour? Is it 45 minutes? And it really is so much more efficient than like deciding every day, like, when am I going to go for a run? And like, you know, like, w- at what point am I going to do X, Y, or Z? Mm, that's helpful. And that's something I'm trying to do. I, I'm not a morning person, but I'm slow. <laughs> slowly trying to change that. Yours could be a late morning routine. Yes. Yeah, that is true. I feel like my brain is good at different things at different times of day. So I'm also trying to notice that. That is also true. Yeah, Yeah. and optimize that. Haven't fully figured it out, but getting there. Okay. The next one is about the title of the show, which is The Art of Speaking Up. And I love to ask every guest, what does The Art of Speaking Up mean to you? I usually do not have a problem speaking up in most work situations. I think that a good way to think about this is like, when is speaking up easy for you? And when is it difficult for you? I think the times when it's difficult is when I know that there's some short term awkwardness or discomfort, right? So I think for a long time in my marriage with my husband, I didn't speak up about, you know, like at some point, I didn't want to go to church on Sundays, and I wanted to go to yoga. And it really literally took me years to say, like, hey, I don't want to go to church anymore. I want to go to yoga. And when I did, finally, it didn't create nearly the storm of, you know, conflict that I thought it would. It created some. But, you know, very quickly, my husband was like, okay, like that's of course, it's fine. So I would say that maybe for me, speaking up is easier sometimes than it is others and having a little reflection on when it has been hard and when I've been able to overcome that and what happened is helped me be a little more forthcoming about more personal situations than professional ones. I love that. And for the final question, the context for this question is I started this show because I had this period in my career where I was very overwhelmed. I didn't have mentors. It was just kind of like a somebody please help me moment (laughs) that lasted for much longer than a moment. And so I wanted to use this show to speak to women who are having a similar experience. And so I always ask the guests to share whatever they would want to share to someone listening who's either having a rough patch or just trying to build that self-efficacy and that self-confidence. You can never underestimate like how important mentors are, like lowercase m mentors who maybe only play a very specific role in your life for a limited amount of time. And then uppercase, you know, letter M mentors who are like really with you for the long haul. And I have been jealous actually of people who have like these like uppercase M mentors who are just like so great. And I was like, oh, I wish I had had that person in my life. It's a, but one thing I've learned is that you can kind of like go out and adopt your own mentors. And like, like if you find that somebody has like really benefited from this like amazing relationship, I mean, my friend Katie Milkman has this like amazing advisor named Max. I mean, Max is like, the menchiest mensch of like all time. And he's so wise and he's so giving and he only cares about like helping his mentees succeed. He has like no ego that I can discern. And I literally asked him, like, I was like, could I get adopted into this family? You have, I like, I guess I can't go back and get my PhD with you, but like, I wish that I could. And he was like, sure. And he invited me to their retreat. And like, I just sort of joked that I'm in the extended family, but only by my own invitation. So if you find somebody who happens to either be a great mentor or have a great mentor, you might just 
ask for, you know, a place at the table. And honestly, it's those amazing, generous people who are like, oh, yeah, like everyone moved down one. Like we have somebody else and like pass the macaroni and cheese. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, Angela. This has been a great conversation. I, I love that you're even having these conversations. And I, I just love the overall theme. It's so important. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this interview. I feel like there were so many things in this one. It was so dense with like learning and information. And it was all very uplifting and inspiring for me. And I hope it was for you too. I want to talk about and just call out some of the concepts that Angela talked about that resonated so deeply with me. And also that I think can really, really help you to like really take it away and figure out, okay, how can I test this out in my day to day life in my job? How can I use this to help build my confidence? And when she shared that idea of incremental mastery, it hit home with me so, so much. And I think this is so important for you, because I know that when you're building confidence, when we're building confidence, I think this is a universal part of the confidence building journey. I think so often we have this vision of the person we're becoming and they are just so confident and so bold and so incredible. And I think that vision is so, so helpful. And I think it's so important too in your day to day not to hold yourself to that vision, not to make the bar so high, but just try to gain mastery over the next small step that contributes to your confidence and consider that a win rather than going into every situation expecting perfection and then ultimately setting yourself up for disappointment. Set yourself up to feel proud of yourself and what you've done. And I like to sometimes think that failure is not a thing. There's no such thing as failure. Failure doesn't exist when you try. And I'm the type of person that would have really rejected that idea a while back. And I would have been like, that's ridiculous. I'm here to have good outcomes. But really, when you don't allow room for things to go imperfect, you end up getting worse outcomes because you put so much pressure on yourself and it becomes so hard to feel good about yourself and really It is about those small steps and small steps can add up to so much. We underestimate what small steps can do for us. So that really stuck with me. And the piece that she mentioned about the research that shows that the thing that determines people's outcomes is if they believe they can do it or they can't. This is gold. This is literally, literally gold. We so often think that our view of ourselves and what we can do and what we're bad at and what we're like not good at, we think that that's like this fixed thing. And it's just true. And it just is how we are. And when you have the bravery and you dare to question that and you dare to say, what if I'm wrong? Or what if I'm better than I perceive myself to be? Or what if I really can do the hard, scary thing that seems impossible? When you dare to ask yourself those questions, and then act on testing whether those questions might be true, you will surprise yourself so, so much with what you can achieve and what you can do and what you can create and how courageous you can be. So those things just really stuck with me. I hope you loved this conversation as much as I did. I'm going to put Angela's Character Lab website below. I will put her book below, Grit. It is such a good book. I highly recommend it. I read it a few years back, actually listened to it on Audible. And if you're into audiobooks, I highly recommend the audio version. It was so motivating. If you are looking for something that like gives you that feeling of fire and is like, yes, now I feel like I can do anything. Grit is that type of book. And that's why I loved it so much. And that's why I love Angela's work. So a big thank you to Angela for coming on the show. And thank you 
for listening to the show. If you are interested in working with me, there are two ways to work with me. I do private one-on-one coaching. You can reach out via my website, justguzzitcoaching.com. And I'm also doing corporate speaking and workshops if that's something that you might be interested in. I will link all of my information below. And of course, please come say hi to me on social media. If you check out the show notes, you can find literally everything socials, my website, you can find some free resources down there also. And I would love to say hi to you if you're thinking of joining the private Facebook group. So I'll link that below also. And that brings us to the end. Oh my gosh. Yay. Okay. In honor of Angela and in honor of her work and in honor of grit, let's all be a little bit grittier this week. Whenever I think about grit and gritty, (laughs) for some reason, the visual of like mud wrestling comes to mind. And I think about like, okay, let's just like put all of our fears behind and like dive into the mud and get really messy. So in honor of grit and in honor of Angela, let's get gritty. Let's get messy. Let's do bold things and let's have fun while we're doing it. And if you do anything bold and you get gritty and you get messy, I would love to hear. So please reach out to me if you want to have an amazing empowered week and I'll catch you in the next episode. All right. Bye.